Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a call from Junior. An incarcerated individual at Airway Heights Correction Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. If this is your first time listening, welcome and thank you for stopping by to check us out. Today is the start of a brand new case. However, we already have over 30 episodes for you to binge right now. Today is part one of my chat with Evaristo Salas, or Junior as he's known. A man who was incarcerated as a child. Well, uh, my name is Evaristo Salas Jr. I was uh, wrongly convicted of first degree uh, premeditated murder when I was 15 years old. Uh, and I was sentenced to 32 years, nine months. Uh, how long have you currently been incarcerated for? I've been incarcerated for 26 years and, and, and six months. Uh, and that would make you how old, sir? I'm going to be 42 on the 17th of December, so if you, in about a week, I'm a week and a half, I'll be uh, 42. The story of Evaristo Salas has been covered in multiple TV shows, but not your normal shows about evil killers and murderers, shows where victims and detectives are interviewed about the vicious crimes committed by the individual. No. Junior's case has been covered by a number of crime shows dedicated to investigating wrongful convictions. In fact, during these shows, information was uncovered that not only was evidence withheld at trial but also that a supposed key witness was paid to lie. Yet with all of this information, Junior still sits in prison over 26 years later. We'll, of course, get to all of that very soon. But before we do, it's important, as always, to start from the very beginning. The story of Evaristo Salas is set in the small town of Sunnyside in Yakima County, Washington, 
It's around 180 miles west of Seattle. With a population of just over 16,000, it's a very agricultural farming community. Historically, it was white farmers and agriculture, until they began to bring in Hispanic workers due to the cheap labour. With a large wave of these workers coming in just after World War II, the population of Sunnyside is now 80% Hispanic. Junior would grow up like most people I speak with who are incarcerated, in a very dysfunctional family situation. Here he is talking about his early years in Sunnyside, living with his mother. Well, I grew up in a, in a small farming town of Sunnyside, Washington, uh, United States, you know. And growing up there was actually, as a kid, I have a lot of good memories of, of, of you know, being in the community, riding my bikes, you know, having a lot of friends. Well, not a lot of friends, but having the ones in the neighborhood and everything. And outside of the house was nice, you know, being out there, uh, enjoying, you know, the, 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 the summer heat, you know, because it gets really hot in the summer times. And we have all three seasons there in, in Sunnyside. Mm. And so we, you know, we rode our bikes around town, those kind of things, you know what I mean? But the, it was pretty chaotic. My family was pretty chaotic because my mother was, and, and my father, they split up when I was about you know, six or seven years old. And this was my stepfather. So I never actually knew my biological father, even though he lived in the same town. I never actually knew who he was. I carry his name, but that's pretty much all that I carry of him, you know, and, and even the way I look and everything. But I didn't know him personally. Um, I've seen him a couple of times, you know, it was a strange kind of, you know, uh, atmosphere to grow up in because the the father that I knew, you know, my stepfather, who, you know, is all I've ever known, I call him my father, he raised me and, and I only have small memories of him and my mother actually together because they split up when I was so young. But I remember, I have a lot of, growing up with my mother was pretty chaotic, you know, um, she was very poor and she was, uh, she was strange in a sense because she had, there was one side of her that was very religious, you know. Mm. You know, she taught us, you know, how to pray, you know, we went to church a lot when we were kids. But then there was another side of her that where she was addicted to every vice there was, you know. And, and, and it was hard to see the two, you know, because, you know, on the weekends we went to church. And then there was other times where she would throw parties at the house and bring all these people, strangers in the house and, and, and do drugs and, and get and drink and, you know, and, and just have these kind of these moments where she was just, you know, so wasted that she didn't even kind of resemble her mother anymore. Mm-hmm. And so she brought a lot of strange people into our house and that kind of stuff. So it was really chaotic. You know, we were always hungry. I was always hungry. Uh, we didn't really have any clothes to wear. Uh, the water was always shut off. Um, I remember us going to food banks. I remember us going to churches and asking for money, those kind of things. Mm. And it's not that she didn't have these things or the government didn't provide it for her because they had a welfare program and did provide the money for her. It's just that she took that money and spent it on, on, drugs on, and stuff. on, on her bad habits, you know, yeah, yeah. drugs and drinking, those kind of things. Mm. And so it was very chaotic, you know, and, and, and my mother had a tendency to, to have boyfriends that were, that were the worst kind. You know, they were, they were, not only were they addicted to drugs just like her, but they were abusive to her. They were abusive to me, uh, sometimes to my sisters, but they seemed mainly to focus on me. I don't know if because I was uh, the boy, you know, and my, my two sisters were there. My, my little brother was born a little bit later, but he's, he's, he was still a baby, you know. Mm. So that there seemed to be almost, you know, I took the brunt of everything when it came to that. And I had really vivid memories of my mother, you know, uh, of being with these abusive people. You know, there was times that I tried to protect her, but I was too young. I was just, I was just a child, and they would toss me aside. And, and she would, what bothered me the most about her, you know, that is that she would always take them back. You know, I mean, they would leave her. There was, I have one real vivid memory of uh, of being alone in the house. Me and my sisters were alone for you know two or three days. I don't, we couldn't, 
nobody knew where, where, where our mother was. We didn't say anything. And, 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 and then she just, I think my dad came over and we couldn't find her. And, and, and two days later, she shows up and, and she's beaten so bad. I mean, her, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't even recognize her. And I just seen her and I just kind of broke down. And, and apparently one of her boyfriends had beat her so bad that he thought he had killed her and threw her out in one of the farms out there in, in the middle of nowhere in, in the outskirts of Sunnyside. And she's kind of crawled away and kind of found her way back <clears throat> to the house, you know, and it took her a day or two. I, I don't remember how long it took her, but it took her that long to actually get back to the, to the house that we lived in. Yeah. And she had dirt all over her, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and, and three or four days later, I, I remember kind of trying to nurse her wounds. She wouldn't go to the hospital. She wouldn't call the cops. Um, she was just trying to protect this, you know, her boyfriend and everything. And two or three days later, he comes back and, and she just welcomes him like, as if, you know, everything was good. And for me, I, I, after that, I had nothing but hatred towards him. You know, uh, prior to that, you know, I kind of, he was with my mother and he was kind of really kind of nice or, or you know, he kind of treated us a certain way. And then when he started kind of becoming abusive and, and, and that's when I just kind of, I just disliked him, you know. So the situation in Junior's home would gradually get worse and more disruptive until he tells me that one day his mother decides she can't handle him anymore and has him sent off to care, where luckily the man, who wasn't his biological father, but the only father he's ever known, comes to his rescue. There was nobody in the house. My sisters weren't there. I don't know where they're at. And I'm walking around the house and I'm thinking, well, damn, where's everybody at? And my mother kind of just comes out of the back room even though I looked for her, I couldn't see her. And she comes back out, out of the back room and she just tells me, oh, you're a bad kid and I don't want you anymore. And I was kind of confused, like, well, what are you saying? And then I think, I mean, a certain amount of period of time passed, but it seemed like it was within that, you know, like a short period of time where the cops kind of just showed up at the house and, and they were taking me to foster care. She was basically giving me to the state. Oh and I tried to run and I tried to beg her, but she had kind of this dead look in her eyes. And she kind of just glossed over my feelings, and I was screaming, what are you doing, you know, all these kind of, you know, things. And, and they just dragged, pretty much dragged me out of there. They tried to cuff me, but my hands were too small, so the cuffs were just falling off. How old were you at the time? I was... Go ahead. How old were you at the time? I must have been about, I think I was about seven. Wow. Six or seven, around that age. And, you know, the cops, I mean, the... the, the they didn't seem to have any kind of sympathy. They were just like there to remove me. Mm. And I didn't know where I was going. They didn't just tell me you're going to foster care. I, you know, I figured that out later on in life, you know, but so they took me to the police station. I wouldn't say anything. And somehow my dad who lived in the same time, my, my, my stepfather who was my father, you know, heard about it, found out about it. And, uh, they ended up, uh, taking me to my father's house. You know, he lived, you know, on the other side of town. And, you know, and I'm kind of unconsolable. I'm crying. And my dad comes into that room and coming to the back of the cop car. And he takes one look at me and he sees me and he just starts almost starts to cry. But he tries to hold it in and he tries to grab me and he says that, you know, it's going to be all right. You know, and, you know, don't don't worry about it. I can't I can't really speak. I'm just saying my mom, my mom. And he tells me, he's like, you know, your mom's in a bad place. You know, and it's kind of his voice is breaking up at the time. And, he, and he's trying basically to explain to a seven-year-old kid, you know, that, you know, that your mother still loves you, you know, but, you know, this is what's going to happen. Mm. But he took me in, you know, so I didn't have to go to foster care. And I, I lived with my dad 
uh, all the way up until the time that I was wrongfully convicted. Junior tells me life with his father was more stable. He didn't drink and he certainly did not do drugs. He was a hard-working man who did his best to teach Junior right from wrong and to teach him to always work hard for his money. However, Junior tells me this hard work meant lots of time spent alone. But he did his best, you know, and I spent probably about a year with my dad. By my, it was just us, and um, he had a four-bedroom house. Uh, it's just us two, and, and he had to work, you know, 12 hours, sometimes 16-hour days. So I spent a lot of time alone uh, there at the house. And then a year later, my older sister came to live with us because she couldn't deal with my mother no more either, and my mother was abusing her and everything. So he took her in, too. So me and my older sister, her name's Debbie, but uh, she's two years older than me. Us two are not, we're not, our biological dad is, our father is not my, uh, my stepfather. So he yeah. took her in and took me in and then, you know, raised us both. And then my younger sister, which who is biologically his, came a year later. So the only one that my mother stayed with was my younger brother. And so he raised us, three of us, uh, pretty much by himself. Here's Junior's older sister on her adopted father and how Junior's life was severely affected by the way he had been treated by his mother. My dad was just a very good provider. Mm. Um, but loving and showing love, he wasn't very good at that. That's sure. just not what he wasn't good at. Sure. Yeah. And my mom wasn't either. So we had to learn to love each other and get that from each other because that's all we had. Mm. And so growing up like that, and then, you know, my mom would pick us up when she felt like it, you know, would take us with her. And I mean, she lived from hotel to hotel and, and, you know, she just like, okay, I'll have you one day and then I don't want you guys dump you off to your dad, you know? And so it was like back and forth for a long time. So, you know, my mom doing that really, messed with my my brother's mind a lot mm. and um he's the one i think that took it the most you know um the hardest because he felt rejected and so all he ever wanted uh, was for her to love him and you know show him that she cared about him and that wasn't the case so it, it was just uh it was a lot for us as a young kid they pretty much raised us and it, it was it was stable i mean we were poor, but he, we never felt like we were poor. Mm. We were never hungry. Uh, there's always food in the refrigerator, you know, and, and you know, our Christmases were, 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 he tried to do as best he could with them, you know, and dealing with my mother and all that kind of stuff. The hard part about it is that, that, you know, he had to work 12 to 16 hours a day. So that left a lot of idle time on my part. Yeah. That, and I was already, like I said, the, the emotional trauma of, you know, being told this by my mother and the chaos that I, deal, I dealt with with her basically kind of, you know, sent me and had my mind in, in a certain way, you know, where I was feel like there was something missing in my life, so I was searching, you know. Mm. And that's when, you know, all the the gang stuff kind of came in, you know, I, it came later when I was about 11 or 12 when the gangs kind of started hitting, you know, the small town of Sunnyside, the Hispanic gangs. Sunnyside maybe a small rural farming community, but it wouldn't be long before the gangs would start moving into town. Gangs like the Eastside Rivada and Norteños would begin to gain a foothold. Prior to that, the, the town was kind of, you know, you could, we all got along, we all went to school together, we all knew each other. But when the gangs came in, like it was like maybe 87 or 88 or 89 around that time, 
everything you can see the splits already happening and, and, and the game violence started kind of taking hold of the community and that kind of stuff and, and we kind of just followed all the kids of that era starting just falling into these different gangs and it kind of just split and and, and uh, fragmented the community before I knew it had you know because I you know hung out with these guys I had these other guys that were already and who I knew and went to school with became my enemies like, almost overnight when, when you say the the gangs arrived like so what happens there so there's no gangs in town and then did certain people move into that town and who were gang members and then they started basically creating their own smaller gangs as it were or yeah, that's kind of that's kind of exactly what happened. Um, there was like an influx of individuals that came from you know southern and northern California. They were escaping the gang violence in the community over there, and they were bringing, they it, bringing it down to they ended up bringing it down to the, these small communities in Washington State. And what they did is when they got there, is they started just recruiting everybody that would come along into these new gangs. That all these gangs are from California, mm. but they just started recruiting anybody that would come along. And and then within maybe a couple of years. You know, every it was fragmented, and, and, and it was already starting to take root. And these, like I said, I grew up with almost all the individuals in that town. We all knew each other, went to school together. And within maybe a couple months or a year, we were all fragmented and, and, and were fighting for things that we didn't even know. You know? And that was the, and it happened really fast. It, it may have took longer, but in my youthful mind, it seems like it happened pretty fast, you know. And... And that's when you started seeing kind of the violence kind of grew from that. Prior to that, there was gangs in Sunnyside, but it wasn't, they weren't like serious gangs. They were like homegrown ones that they would fight here and they were over schools and that kind of stuff, you know. But you didn't see the colors. You didn't see the gang attire, the way that, the, the way they dress and all that stuff. You didn't see that kind of stuff until probably the late 80s, you know, or, you know, mid-80s. That, that's when you started seeing the change. And then in the early 90s is when it really started kind of, you know, gripping the community and the, the violence kind of grew into you know, where people were actually getting shot, killed, and those kind of things. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Junior tells me how the violence from the gangs would become increasingly worse, to the point he would have to plan every trip out of his home just to avoid being attacked. It was an everyday thing. I literally could not walk anywhere in any direction. I was either going to get jumped, I was going to get shot. And so what I would do, I would have to come up with a strategy of how to get from point A to point B. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So as always, a huge thank you to each and every one of you for supporting this show each and every week by not only listening, but getting involved as well. Our Facebook community now has grown to over two and a half thousand people uh, who are in there every single day discussing the cases we talk about and having healthy debates about all the evidence uh, that we have in each one of these cases. So thank you so much indeed for everyone who gets involved. Of course, a massive shout out uh, to our Patreon members. We've had so many new members join in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, so shout out to Tim Wilson, Kirsty Swithenbank, Tom Field, Brian McKay, uh, Isaac Sumpton, uh, Ellie Patterson, Brian Madigan, We've got Trent Harvey, Charlotte, Kat Colley, Melissa Clayton, Taylor Maskew, so many people. I can't list everybody, but thank you so much indeed for your support every single month. If you would like to become a part of the OMR family, just click the link in the description below. The ever-growing presence of gangs in Sunnyside would be so bad that in 1992 a show called Street Stories would highlight just how bad the problem had become in the area. In fact, believe it or not, in this actual show, we see a very young Evaristo Salas poking his head into a police car as they ask the kids about gangs. Uh, almost the majority of our time was dealt with juveniles. Here they are. Hey, how you doing, guy? You been staying out of trouble there? Good. Now, which one you guys been drinking? No one. I smell liquor. Whoa. Okay. What do you guys think of gangs? They're awesome, man. They're awesome. Hey, we think that. And John, what do you think of when you, when you hear answers like this? Think about my kids. Why do you think the gang problem has been on the rise in this community? Where are these guys coming from? We have a real big migrant population here. We also have, uh, well, we have a lot of folks coming up from California and Texas, and they're bringing a lot of knowledge and... Uh, a lot of that activity with them. It's scary. It's real scary. What frightens many people in Sunnyside is the age of some of these gang members. 9, 10, 11 years old. These kids idolize gangsters in the big cities. And they've brought a crime wave to this small farming town. It was like a subtle kind of recruitment. You know, there were some individuals that went around, you know, that they got there and they were, oh, this guy's my friend, I put him on or this kind of stuff. But then once they were kind of established, you just hung around with individuals and then you became labeled that. Yeah. And then you were like, okay, well, then that's what I'm a part of because these guys are attacking <clears throat> me now, so I might as well. And so it was a little bit mixture of those two things. Right. And I got kind of, uh, it was strange because it, what happened was that my my uh, my dad, you know, he uh, ended up, uh, he got with some, uh, with some woman and they were together for a number of years where her kids were a part of kind of that gang. And I had known them since we were kids and everything, so, you know, I just started hanging around with them. And that's how kind of it started, you know. And I just started, I started hanging around with them, and then other individuals started disliking me and say, well, you're this, you're that. And then eventually I just became a part of it. Mm. 
and then that that's kind of it's a, it's a subtle it's a weird because when you're that young I'm, I was I think I was 12 at the time or 11 you don't really understand you know the magnitude of the decision you're actually making you know yeah of course and you know you just kind of just oh these are my friends you know and, and I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna you know protect them they're gonna protect me we, anyways we're getting jumped by these guys over here we need protection this seems like in your youthful mind is the logical step you know to ask you know for protection it's only later that you kind of realize you know what is you know the course that's going to take you on but that's kind of how it, it was kind of just a subtle approach and then and, and, you know i ended up getting uh, being a part of the gang and it was a small gang it was never more than maybe 30 people at a time you know and so it was, it was very small and uh we kind of just protected each other and that kind of stuff you know but at the same time it's strange because when you're that young you're not really it's not really you're going out there and committing crimes, or you're doing this, you're doing that. Literally, you're just hanging out, doing stupid things, you know, and being a, a delinquent, you know. Yeah. And so it was, we wore certain colors, you know, we wore this, the gang attire and all that kind of stuff, you know, but we didn't really actually know what these things meant, you know. And, and that's the bad part about it, because it's not like they sit there and they explain that to you. They, You need to be have a certain amount of ignorance in order to continue this kind of lifestyle, you know. And so... We just kind of loosely were just, you know, well, this is my friend. We hang out together, this and this and that. We don't like these guys. We didn't even know why we didn't like them. Yeah. Or they were this color or they're that. And so and at that point, it wasn't that we hated each other yet because we could still see people and talk to them. The hatred would come later because, you know, then that's when the shooting started, the killings and those kind of stuff. And then you started like, oh, this guy did this person to my, this person I knew or that person. And that's when it starts to kind of solidify in the community. And then the violence starts to go up, you know. And for me, it was like being home alone all the time and that kind of stuff. You know, I looked at it and, well, these are my brothers, you know, these are family. Um, they're my friends and that kind of stuff, which is, you just kind of latch on to whatever comes along. You know? And again, from the same show back in 1992, they speak with kids about the pressures of joining gangs at that time. Have any of you been approached by somebody in the gang that says, hey, join us? They just say that, like, you're chicken and they're going to go beat you up or something because you didn't join their gang. Why do kids join gangs at this school? Because they think um, that's their family right now. They don't, if they don't have both parents together, then that's what the gang tries to show them is the love and affection that they don't have in their house. 13-year-old Danny Lopez is a schoolmate of Juan Artiega and a prime target for gang recruitment. Are you lonely? Yeah. Sometimes I just, there's anger inside me, it's hard. What do they say to you when you, when you say, I don't want to join? They just like, you join and we'll be, your, we'll be your family and all this stuff. We'll be your best friends. You got problems, we'll solve them for you. Was there drugs involved with the gangs? Oh, like, were, they, were they selling drugs or dealing drugs? I remember there, there was drug use, but it was mainly like, you know, uh, marijuana uh, and drinking here and there if you can get someone to buy you. It wasn't really kind of established as that. Nobody was really making money. We all were kind of probably poor. You know, even the clothes that we wore were kind of pretty, they weren't up to par with the, you know, the kind of style that you would want, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, when you look back at things, you know, those were the seeds of what grew into what is now. It's different now. But back then... You would come across certain individuals that, that, you know, they had money, that kind of stuff, and were selling drugs, but they weren't close to us, and they weren't giving us anything. So if you, if you were, like, let's say you were going to, like, California, those gangs have been established for decades, you know? Mm. And so they have kind of a, a hierarchy of how things are to be. But since it was so new in our community, 
there was none of that there. And to a certain extent, it was not only a free-for-all, but there was, there was nothing really established there at that time. So there was no sort of older people that were using you guys to, to sell it so that they didn't, they didn't get in trouble? I think that came probably years after I was already in prison. Yeah. But those, those things were so new that, that everybody was almost like a, we're all around the same age, you know, there was no really hierarchy or structure, you know, and we, you know, we argue with each other more than anything too, you know. So it was almost like, just a, like you would look at them as, just a bunch of kids getting together doing stupid things and fighting each other for no reason because they were, at that time they were just like, we were actually fighting. And then the guns and all that came later when I started, you know, towards the, but when I turned 14 and 15, that's when things got really serious. And I started getting shot at and chased and then jumped and almost stabbed almost every day. That's when it became, you know, it, that's when it started solidifying and becoming real violent. So Junior tells me that over time, the violence began to get more and more severe. Kids would graduate from getting in fights and throwing rocks at cars to beginning to arm themselves with weapons like knives and guns. So when was the first time that you saw a gun like someone had? Was it someone in your group or was it, you know, someone in another gang? When was the first time you saw someone like carrying a, uh, carrying a gun for, shall we say, protection? I seen, well, I seen, uh, the first time I actually seen was when one was being pointed at me when I was, I think I was... Uh, I think I was 13. We were crossing a bridge, you know, and, and this small little bridge is over a canal. And these guys pulled up, and they were from a rival gang, and they pointed it at us. You know. I kind of jumped out of the way. The other guy's like, oh, it's fake or something. They threw a rock at the car or something like that. They didn't end up shooting at us or anything, but they pointed it at us. And then a couple other times, you know, a few years, you know, maybe a year later, a couple months later, there would, someone drove by, shot a couple times in the air, things like that. And then you would see maybe one or two persons, you know, they would have like, you know, uh, a rifle or some, or maybe a 22 here and there, and they were those, those small little guns or whatever they would come. It was slowly that that kind of slowly was starting to filter into in, in, into our gang too, you know, and and because things started getting more violent, you know. And back then there was still like there was only like two streets in my neighborhood, and, it, and sometimes a real small town. But if I left those two streets, I was gonna get jumped or get in a fight. And and I remember uh, one of the schools I went to was in a kind of a rival neighborhood of one of the gangs. And I literally would get chased over there, and then they would wait for me after school and try to jump me, and uh, sometimes you know chase me down or that kind of stuff, you know. So it it was it was still you know that kind of stuff, you know. And then later towards when I you know towards I would say ninety four, ninety five, and ninety six is when that's when they started kind of shooting at us, and then it became really serious, you know. These guys are actually trying to kill us, you know. And then it became then you had that kind of fear that you kind of really didn't have before, and I started worrying about you know, them doing drive-bys at my house or, or you know, uh, my sisters live there and that kind of stuff, my dad. And, and you know, and so that the fear of, of, of death became, started becoming real about the age of 13 or 14. And then you would see individuals here and there, you know, part of my gang that had a gun here or had a gun there. Um, but it was never like, you know, I, I it was never like, well, these guys have it or you guys have it like that, you know what I mean? So it was just, it was just so new, I think, to the area, you know, and, it's probably a lot different now, but back then it was, you know. You know, all these things that you're saying about how, you know, you, you get chased and jumped. And when I was a kid, there was a gang and for somehow, some reason, some rumour got around that I'd, I'd said something about them anyway. It was ridiculous, stupid kid stuff. But I remember one night when I was at home, my parents were away and I had some friends over and they turned up at my house and tapped on my window with a knife and they were trying to break into the house. And I have never been more scared in my entire life than that particular night. And that was just one night. And it never happened again. And I, I heard that if they, you know, if they broke in, they were going to apparently like chuck me in the boot of the car or something, beat me up and all the rest of it. But 
I was, I've never been more yeah. terrified in my life. And that was one night. And, and you essentially went through that every single day of your life. Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't just me. It was like everybody a part of it. And it was everybody that was part of the community. And, and it was the worst part about it is, in a sense, we were kind of doing it to ourselves. You know what I mean? We were, we were fighting for, for unknown reasons. We were, you know what I mean? And then it just perpetuated into something violent. And then it was, it was an everyday thing. I literally could not walk anywhere in any direction. I was either going to get jumped. I was going to get shot. And so what I would do, I would have to come up with a strategy on how to get from point A to point B. And I'll say, okay, well, I know this person lives here, so I'm going to cut this way, and I'm going to cut through this yard and go that way. And it was a constant, like, you know, and if sometimes you feel a little more secure if you have three of your buddies with you or your, or your supposed gang members with you. You feel a little more secure, but someone can just drive up and, and, and start shooting at you, or they come up with more people, and then you're fighting. I mean, I went down not even two blocks from my house and went to a store, which we, sh- we know we shouldn't go to because that area is kind of, uh, I wouldn't say control, but I'd say that there's a bunch of other gang members that live there, rival gang members. We came out of the store with our pop, and they were, they were waiting for us, five of them. And one of them all tried to stab me, and literally almost stabbed me. And if it wasn't for one of my friends throwing a pop in his face, you know, that he prevented him from actually stabbing me. And that, that was an everyday thing, and it almost became a norm. And it's like we lived with this almost this fear inside of us every single day that we had to fight or we had to run. You know, there was one time I came out of a, uh, and this is not even a block down from my house. I came out of this store, this Mexican store, and I had a bunch of, you know, donuts I was buying. And there was 20 rival gamers right there that just called my name. And I looked, and the only thing I could do was, I mean, I must have been like, what, 14, I think. I just ran. But if they would have caught me, you know, they could have beat me to this. There was times where, you know, I, I, I'd get caught where they would say, you know, you, you got caught slipping or whatever. Myself and they would be, you know, ten to fifteen guys, you know, that are their, their rivals. For whatever reason, they would let me pass and not do nothing, or they couldn't, or I would just, you know. But most of the time, it was either if they caught me, I would have to either run, you know, because if not, I was going to get a, a beating, you know. And there was one time I was right outside my house. There's a there used to be a field right there, and I'm laying there, and there's two and like two other my other buddies were from, 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 from the same gang and everything. And I'm sitting there and I look up and I see these two guys running at us. And before I could even uh, stand up, this one big guy just kicked me in the face. And then another guy started fighting with one of my other friends. And then he literally, I was already pretty much with that hit. I was pretty much out of it. And literally just stomped me out for about, you know, five, by almost five minutes. And I didn't even know who this person was. I just assumed he was a rival gang member. And then some of my other friends came running and they chased him off. But I was already a bloody mess by that time, you know. And he, I mean, he just came out of nowhere, just literally ran out the side of, you know, uh, the f- uh, far field, and, and I didn't even have a chance to get up. And it was things like that that happened constantly. And I, w- I was so small, you know, it, that, that was, I couldn't, I could fight, but I, I mean, I tried to fight, but it was, I was no match for almost most of these guys. So I was getting, I was literally getting beat up almost all the time. So of course, with increasing gang activity, it wouldn't be long before Junior would come onto the radar of local law enforcement. He says that he undoubtedly brought it all on himself because of what he was getting into, but he says that the police would eventually be knocking on his door any time something happened in the area. And then, the, you know, this started the, you know, the process of, you know, the cops always coming to my house, you know, that kind of stuff. And anything that happened within my neighborhood, if there was a broken window, if down the street somebody did something at the store, 7-Eleven that I lived by, they would, they would literally just come to my house and pick me up. And don't get me wrong, I did a lot of stupid things as a kid, you know. Yeah. I used to tag up, I used to break windows because I was bored. 
uh, we get fights with other gang members, those kind of things, you know what I mean? So I, I, I stole stereos, those kind of things. I stole from the store at times. So I'm not trying to say, oh, I never did anything wrong, you know. Maybe I, by me acting the way I was, that I brought so much, you know, you know, maybe people were calling about things that were missing, that kind of stuff, that it brought so much heat to that community, that these cops had to act that way. But they took it kind of further than that, you know. They, they, they not only harassed us, but I think that they treated us with a, not only a sense of indifference, but they looked at it as, that as if we're gonna grow into be something terrible, so they gotta get rid of us in one form or another. And whatever way they have to do that, they're going to do that. And so they would come to my house and pick me up for this and and that. And say, "Yo, you did this and did that." And my dad, he was he was like, there was times they would come to the house. One time they came to the house and they're like, "You're under arrest." I was I was sitting in the back uh, watching TV, and I said, "For what?" And they wouldn't even tell me. They just cuffed me up, threw me in the back of the car. Well, I think I was 14 at this time already. Took me to the 7-Eleven down the block. Shined the light in the back, and the lady looks at me because the store clerk. I go to 7-Eleven. I used to go to 7-Eleven two or three times a day. Looks at me. He goes, "That's not the guy." You know what I mean? That, it, that, that kid lives down the street. I know who that is. And then they took me back to my house and let me go. And then my dad looks at me and goes, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean what am I doing? He goes, well, if they're coming to the house all the time, you obviously you must be doing something. I said, Dad, look, I don't even know why they came. They took me this. And so for the first, I would say for the first couple of times that they actually came to get me, my dad was convinced that I was doing stuff, you know. Yeah. And I was to a certain extent, but not the stuff that they were coming in. And they were coming for every single little thing, you know. And then he finally realized that he can't possibly be doing all these things because it was literally constant. And it became, that became almost a routine too. There was another time that they came and just in the, in the morning, I think it was eight in the morning, nine in the morning. They had caught my little brother. My little brother was maybe five or six. They were writing on the wall at the 7-Eleven or something, their names on the wall. That cop took it upon himself. It was another cop, not, not Rivar, but another one. He came to the house, said that I was over there spray painting or something like that. And I had literally just woke up. And my, that he had, my little brother said that I did it. My brother was five years old, I was six years old. And I'm like, well, where's my little brother at? And I stepped out of the house and then he just arrested me. And then threw me in the back of the cop car, took me to another, uh, like right across the street or on the other block where my brother was. He was, he's there crying, seeing me in the cop car. And then, so I start, I get pissed off and I start kicking the door, you know, which was stupid to do. So he comes back, grabs me, face plants me and tries to hog tie me. Throws me in the back of the cop car. Takes me to the police station, handcuffs me to one of the top, takes me to the cell in the back, handcuffs me to the top of the rails, puts a seat under me and says, oh, I'll come back and see when you're tired. I, I, I literally st- stood there for almost nine hours and then he just released me. And, and, and it, it was that kind of, you know, uh, harassment that I was getting constantly. You have one minute remaining. And that wraps us up for this episode. Coming up next time, it's November 14, 1995. 6.20pm, a cold night on Seoul Road, Sunnyside, Washington. Jose Aurelio is sitting in his vehicle when all of a sudden, two shots ring out. And he's killed instantly. They just looked at me and said, well, we're going to charge you. And that's... That was the beginning of the nightmare right there. Next time on One Minute Remaining. And a special thank you this week to producer Diverse for hooking us up with some of their music for today's episode. You can check them out on YouTube and Instagram, all the details in the show notes for this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. 
This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.